Hello and welcome to Eden Talks, a podcast series which looks at how Eden House and our partners support our customers and each other in an ever-changing business landscape. My name's Phil Southall and I'm a solutions architect operating in the HR and success factors world here at Eden House. And in today's episode, we'll be looking at how businesses can support employee well-being in a post-pandemic world. And to help with that, I'm joined today by Michael Esau, who is a global HR advisor at SAP SuccessFactors, and Paul Duggan, who is a UK wellbeing lead and mental health network co-lead at Accenture. Accenture recently became our parent group here at Eden House. Welcome to you both. Although workplace mental health and wellbeing has, has clearly been in the spotlight since the pandemic hit, it's certainly not a new phenomenon. You've both been involved in, in the subject throughout your careers. So I'd like to, Paul, start with you really and, and just kind of understand your experience in this area. Hello, thank you. I suppose I've had a bit of a, an interesting route into wellbeing. So I've been with Accenture for actually 20 years this month and very much started out in the climate facing part of the business where I worked for about 13 years. And I was often involved in things like engagement roles, side of desk on projects. And then I had to take a bit of time off, which I might talk about a bit more later on, and came back into a different role. And at the same time, started to get more involved in the topic of mental health in the workplace. And we have a mental health network that now has almost 3,000 people in it. And over time, I just say became more and more involved in that to the point that I'm now one of the leads of the network. And then 12 months ago, or a bit more than 12 months ago now, we created some new wellbeing roles in HR in response to some of our internal survey data that showed we need to put more of a focus on it. So I applied for one of those roles and pleased to say got it. Although I did get a wellbeing role with somewhat comic timing starting about two weeks before the UK went into lockdown as a result of a global pandemic. So it's been an interesting 12 months, but actually we just had to throw ourselves in the deep end. So it's also been a really sort of powerful learning experience because there was no time to sort of sit in rooms with whiteboards playing with post-it notes. We just had to really get on with it. I feel like I've learned probably two or three years worth of stuff in a 12-month period, if that makes sense. Gosh, yeah, that's a bit of a baptism of fire, really. And Michael, how about you? How did you become involved in employee wellbeing? It's slightly different. I think my career in the world of HR goes back over 20 years. So I've always been focused from an organization development perspective, looking at how do we really look at what that employee value proposition is. So from a design perspective, so really looking at the overall life cycle, thinking about what an engagement strategy that sort of connected experience looks like. So in, in many respects, it's the facets that can contribute to our well-being and influencing them at source. And so, you know, for me, I've always taken the lens of what does this mean from a change perspective to an organization, but then what does it mean to the individual? And I know that we'll be talking a lot more about that today is what does this actually mean to me? And it's a huge topic. It's always been the forefront of how do we create an environment where people can be their best every single day, feel engaged, feel fulfilled, go home and say, I had a really good day. And so that's always been that sort of point of reference. Yeah. And I suppose that the fact you've been talking about employee well-being for so long kind of illustrates that it's always been something managers need to consider. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I always say is, is that if you look at our DNA, it hasn't changed for hundreds of years. So when we wake up in the morning, we bring everything about us to work. You can't just hang it up at the door. We all have whole lives. So we, as individuals, we need certain things to happen to have a good day, whether that's clarity in terms of what we're there to do, feedback in terms of how well we've done it, feeling supported while we're doing it, feel valued, safe. And so, and I think that sort of psychological contract between an individual and the leader has always been crucial. It's not that it's now more crucial than ever. Leaders, for me, 
have a fundamental role in the success of organizations. So what's happened in the last sort of five years, I think, in as we entered the age of digital and consumerization, the fabric of how we live our lives has changed. We now have a micro experience outside of work. Our preferences and our expectations have changed beyond recognition. We want more autonomy. Our voice is louder. And so COVID has shined a light on all of that. But that's not to say that this has only just appeared because of COVID. We'd reached a turning point probably four, five, six years ago. I think organizations have got to sort of think back now to the basics of purpose. How does our employee value proposition link to that? Because I think it went out of fashion. I'm not sure why, but it did. We've got to get back to really truly thinking about what is that proposition? What does it mean in our organization? Why do people want to come and work here? And do we meet that? Do we deliver that? It's been crucial forever and a day, probably just now even more so because of the fact we're going through this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, things have changed quite considerably, really, haven't they? I mean, think about it just over a year ago now where we were all face-to-face, we were out talking to customers, we were kind of interacting with our managers side-by-side, you know, in an office environment or whatever, or, and weren't even thinking about the concept of potentially being homebound for the best part of a year and having to adapt to kind of new ways of interacting with people. It was a big and it was a sudden change, and we need that support from organisations and managers and co to, to help us get through that, don't we, really? Yeah. And, and I think, though, for some, the shift to virtual has been almost a at last, right? I've been working virtually for years and years and years. Now we have to. This suits me. For some, it's an absolute shock, right? And I think for many leaders, it has heightened the awareness of the basic fundamentals of being a leader, the checking in, are you okay? Ensuring clarity, giving good feedback, creating a sort of a community they've had to focus in on these basic fundamentals i can only imagine for some leadership groups that's been really hard because they've not had to do it before we've had more team calls in the last year than we did previously because we saw our team members and they looked okay so i suppose we didn't have team meetings just general team meetings that that said you know how are you doing where's your weekend been and all that sort of stuff and, and getting to know each other a little bit more personally but we have been in the last year because we've had that kind of consideration i think that we need a weekly check-in with people in our own team to make sure everyone's okay and that they need support in what they're doing because i say you can't sit and look across the desk next to them and say they look like they're doing okay over there and you know i won't disturb them we're actually asking the questions now i suppose Paul, from your angle, as things have changed so quickly, what are the main ways that companies have to adapt to respect the, the staff mental health? Well, I think I very much build on what Michael says. I think for me, what the pandemic has done is it's not really changed the fundamental challenges around employee well-being and mental health, but it's thrown existing issues in sharper relief around the role you can play as a team lead to actually make sure everyone's bringing themselves to work and make sure everyone's okay. And then some more specific challenges that do arise from the pandemic, which, for example, loneliness. So We know loneliness is a strong precursor to poor mental health, but loneliness was a much smaller issue. So again, things like encouraging regular check-ins, making sure there's an emphasis on the communal elements of work, which is a lot harder in a virtual environment because meetings are always purposeful. So you have a meeting for a reason to talk about something, but in between meetings in the kitchen, in the office, there's bits of chat that fill that gap and create that sense of community. When that kitchen is not there anymore, you've got to kind of artificially force those things a bit. And it's not perfect because we can't replicate some of the things that people are missing. So one of the things that we did, which I think was quite powerful, it's quite difficult as well, is we set up a regular mental health pulse. And we're very lucky that we have a very strong research organisation that does research into mental health challenges anyway. And our last piece of research, the survey was still set up and we turned that into a pulse survey. And what came back was that our people were having a hard time. And over time that it was becoming more challenging. 
But also what came back was that a lot of that is to do with things like lack of social connect, lack of family connect, which obviously isn't directly in our gift. And there wasn't a solution for at the time. Forget from a company perspective, just full stop. We had to obey the rules of lockdown. It was the right thing to do. But what we could look at is one of the things that you can do. And there's a lot of it's about kind of subtle tweaks in behavior. So make sure there's time in team meetings to actually have those check-ins find ways to make it fun so for example we use a tool internally called Burbel, which just asks a random question and it sounds really quite trite and a bit cliche but actually you get people into the rhythm of doing it you learn an awful lot about people and you get to know people I think that's especially important where the team dynamic doesn't already exist if you've been working with a group of people for years and you know them quite well I think lockdown has probably and obviously generalizing massively been a bit easier because those dynamics are already in place and those caring behaviors are hopefully already in place we had to partner with a lot of new organisations in the same time. And we used that to kind of basically build a relationship with those people in those meetings rather than just going through an actions list. The other big change for us was around how do we take the stuff we think we are good at? So our mental health network, which we're very proud of, but all of our training was centred around face-to-face. And the reason for that was from a safeguarding perspective, because we wanted to create a safe space for people to open up and talk candidly. And if you do that in a room and someone becomes a bit emotional, then it's very easy for the trainers. And we always have two trainers one of the trainers to step out and sort of check in with that person or for those people that kind of hang around at the end when you are metaphorically packing up the projector to have a conversation that becomes much harder in a virtual environment so we had to redesign all of our mental health training which we managed to do I think we've probably lost a little bit of that but we've now built in time afterwards with trainers where people can kind of just come and talk about their feelings or you know if an issue's come up and it's enabled us to keep that program going and what we've actually seen if anything is an upswing in the number of people that want to join the mental health network because whilst it's there ostensibly to act as a gesture of inclusivity and to make sure people are there for other people to talk to what we actually find is people want to join it also for their own well-being and we know from our own inter measurement that people who do the training are more resilient But I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's been an ongoing journey of discovery for companies as well. For example, all the calls that went in, our experience generally is those calls started to be less well attended and a lot of them were petered out because we almost over-indexed on things at the start. And actually the bigger challenge, and I think the challenge if we look forward, is going to be how you do those things sustainably because there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer. There's still going to be a lot of remote working. And it's how do you make those things sort of rhythmic and habitual? And I think some people are naturally very good at that and always have been, but it needs to become everyone who aspires to lead a team, even if they're not naturally a people person, needs to see being a people person as part of their skill set. Along with having good benefits like healthcare, and we launched a very good home workout offering recently, that all helps. But if you haven't got that core sense of inclusion and belonging and being willing to flex your team and your style around the fact you'll have different needs within that team, I think you're going to struggle. Whereas the people that get used to that and it becomes a habit for them are the ones that will thrive and they will also attract the best people because those are the kind of people people want to work for I don't want to work in a team where everyone has the same working style and hours and patterns as me because that's not realistic I want to work in a team where my working hours and style and my family setup will be accommodated in the same way that everyone else's will and we all come together to produce something and deliver something but everyone is able to bring their whole self to work It used to be like a luxury to work from home. (laughs) And when you did it, you almost felt slightly guilty. And therefore, you found yourself kind of working slightly longer hours when you worked from home because you didn't want to be caught not at the desk as such (laughs) when you were working. But now, of course, we've had to adapt over the last year and not just around kind of working from home, but also working around our families or, you know, you're living on your own. How you make sure you get that balance right between work and your own personal health in terms of switching off, having a lunch break, for instance, or finishing at the weekend. At the moment, I find it really easy to look at the laptop at the back of the room and say, well, actually, if I do 
a bit this weekend. It'll help me for Monday morning. And, and really, that's not a healthy way to work, is it really? Not for everybody. Do you find much feedback on terms of how people want to kind of balance their work life? I'm fascinated by what's going to happen next. So there's this yin and yang of some organizations saying, work where you can, when you can, et cetera. And some saying, no, right, you're, you're coming back into the office. And I think the ones that will thrive is the one that actually recognizes difference. We've started to see things like senior roles in HR or talent and people applying saying, I only want to work four days. I want a greater balance in my life. I'd like to maybe give a day to doing some volunteering or giving back. And organizations are going, oh, that's not a, it's not a four-day job. It's a five-day job. It's a six-day job, right? But this is what's happening. So there's got to be a greater appreciation of whole self and balance and difference. Now, diversity and inclusion is crucial because... As human beings, we're all pretty unique. We all got a unique set of circumstances. We've all got things that we bring to the party. Yeah, there's a ton of feedback around it. I do speak to some of my colleagues who are itching to get back to the workplace. They're looking forward to those little conversations, little dialogues. There are colleagues who have joined our organization the last 12 months. They've only met colleagues virtually. And that's tough, right? I get that. That is really tough. We've got to be more considered. I think that's the really key thing. No matter who, whether you're leading a team or you're a peer or a colleague or whatever, we've all got to be far, far, far more considered in how we connect. And I'm, I'm with Paula. 100%. If you're leading people, you have to have that people-centric aspect front of mind. And I was really interested talking to a couple of my customers last year about the adapting, et cetera. And one of my customers was pulsing regularly. Those leaders who are more empathetic performed really well. They pulsed really well. Those leaders that were very task-orientated struggled really struggled. So it really reinforces that point about empathy, standing in the shoes of others, being considered, understanding what's going on versus, no, this is what I want you to do. And I really don't care what else is going on. So yeah, it's been really interesting. And culture, organization, climate, all of these things, I've just got to be really looked at. How does work get done? How do you create an environment where people say, it feels great to be here? I feel part of this. All of that has got to be revisited. And the heart of it will be, what is the role of the future leader? It seems like we're heading towards a new future, as it were, that things have changed forever, really. You know, a lot of people are saying this, my work will never be the same, you know, my work environment, my work conditions. Do you see there'll be like a new norm? How will we deal with those from a mental health perspective? I'm not convinced that there will be a new norm. There will be a a new position of how things get done. But this word normal is really dangerous. We're going to get back to normal. Well, I don't think we can. I think what we're going to go through is a reiteration and a reimagination of how do we actually do things when we go into the future? And we need to be considered about how we do it. We're obviously talking about a post-pandemic world, and we're talking about it from a work context. But we cannot ignore the external context. The world has moved on its axis whether it be the pandemic, whether it be things like Brexit, whether it be the change in demographic, the generational values are quite different for maybe past generations. All of this external context influences our lives. And organizations have got to be truly, truly mindful of that changing context when they really think about what kind of organization they aspire to be. And I really do honestly believe that when it settles. Let's use that word then, right? When it settles, I think some organizations will see some churn and some turnover because I think some people will go, I'm not sure actually I was looked after as well as I would have liked to have been. 
I don't know if my experience over that period was as good as it could have been. And I do think there will be some churn. I think people will vote with their feet. Interesting. What do you think, Paul? I think settles is a very good word. I think there isn't going to be a new normal, is my view. Or there will be, but it'll be for each individual. It has been quite interesting to see some other companies make quite strident statements. And my belief is when you kind of peel back from those, there'll be so many caveats because what might work brilliantly for a percentage of employees won't work for other employees who you do want to retain. And therefore, you'll start flexing around those things if you know you do have a good talent strategy, you do have a good leadership culture. But I do not think we will land on some pattern or state where we're like, oh, the pandemic's done now. And this is we're either back to where we were or this is how it's going to be for the next 30, 40 years of work. I just don't think that's going to happen. And I think it's actively healthy to dissuade people from that attitude, because I think if people kind of hang their expectations and hopes on that, then they're going to probably be a bit disappointed. And that's not going to help with people sort of being resilient and healthy in the workplace. How can businesses and managers help with some of the issues? Well, I think there's kind of good news here, because I think at its simplest level, if you are leading a team, the best way to look after your team is to look after yourself and be demonstrative about it, because people will do as you do, not as you say. So if you're telling your team they need to look after their work-life balance, they need to make sure they're making time to take advantage of all the wonderful well-being offerings your company's got, but they then see you emailing from six in the morning until 10 o'clock at night, then they will think, well, that's what I need to do to be successful. In a way, looking after yourself and putting your oxygen mask on first is a really positive thing team leads can do. I think the second bit of good news is that doesn't mean you need to become a kind of well-being avatar. You don't need to be perfect. So well-being its sort of core is actually not that difficult. We kind of get enough sleep, eat the right foods, move regularly, do things that nourish you and you enjoy. But the habits and the time to do that are hard. That's where the difficulty is. Obviously, that's a very sweeping statement. There are extremes of health and well-being as well. So actually being open about that as well, talking about your experiences, acknowledging you have a difficult time, talking about the things you take advantage of in the workplace. So things like if you've got an EAP line, helping to normalise accessing help and support. All those things are really powerful. And actually, as someone who does this quite a lot now in the workplace, it actually is also really good for you because it keeps you honest. It's quite a nice feeling to actually see the impact of sharing your own stories with people. And I'm someone who burnt out five years ago, had to come back to work and really reassess my view of success. I would say I now have a much broader view of success than I probably had prior to that burnout. The impact that has talking to other people, how it liberates them to think about and talk about the same things is really powerful. So that would be my sort of big piece of advice for managers and team leads. I think the other thing that's powerful to do is make sure your team have the time and space to actually understand what's available to you. We've launched quite a lot in the last year. That only has an impact if people have the attention span to notice it. So we've launched a new wellbeing marketplace, which has got loads of stuff in it. And the idea is it's got less stuff in it than Google and it's curated and it's QA, but there's still a lot of it. We've launched a new um, home workout app fit. If people don't have the time to access those things, they don't have any impact. So don't just assume people are using those things. Part of your job as a team lead to be to make sure people are noticing those things. And if they want to sort of feel they have the time to take advantage of them. So I don't think it's complex, but it takes time and focus that's not just on what are your deliverables? What does your project plan say? It's about that sort of demonstrative behavior, creating that vulnerability and that space for people to open up and actually make well-being a part of your daily conversation. Because as Michael said right at the start, we bring our whole selves to work. And if we can't do that, then especially in this environment where work is even more a prominent part of our lives because we can't access a lot of the other parts of our lives at the moment, then when do you get to do that? I think one thing for me that organizations can really do 
So we talk a lot about the workplace experience. Our well-being and our mental health is a manifestation of that experience. So it's just understanding, I think, you know, from a leadership and from an organization, what is that sort of causation and correlation between what happens day to day and then how do I then feel about that? And I don't think that's always completely understood. So I do think there's a, a need to educate leaders about how they contribute, not how does they solve problems and support, but how do they actually contribute to that? People need clarity. What am I here to do? And then they really want feedback, understanding that these are essential elements of what a leader is facilitating. And when those things don't happen, trust me, they have an impact. They kill engagement. They, they kill how somebody feels about their value. They don't feel recognized. Their contribution isn't there. So I think there's an education piece that continues to be high up on the list. And then, as Paul was saying, being really clear on what resources are there to help and what they are, you know, really make it part of the day. Make it just part and parcel of the dialogue, the conversation. Be vulnerable. Show humility. And because I think then, then people will be more open to disclosure feel safe to say how they're feeling and then all of a sudden then it doesn't become a taboo so what advice do you have for maintaining mental well-being not all employees are office-based for instance some have to go into their work environment every day myself for instance i found over the last year that going out for a run for instance that's something i put into my weekly plan a bit more than i used to shall we say you know trying to get out and get some fresh air and stuff taking calls and go for a walk down the road with the calls trying to have lunches but that was more difficult i'm finding more that i'm working through my lunches as opposed to sitting away you know i'm sitting in the living room i've got the tv behind me i could turn around and put the tv on and watch the news while I'm eating my lunch, but I don't. I sit in and continue working. What advice do you guys have for our listeners that would help them in their daily routines? I mean, I think probably to talk about my own experience, may not frame it as advice, but what works for me, I think habit and routine are really important. It's much easier to maintain these things if you can make them a habit. And then it's about finding things that kind of help enhance the habit. So I think I talked before about our virtual fitness offering fit, you know, and obviously as the well-being leader, I should be using the stuff that we promote and I do. The reason that works for me is because there's lots of ongoing challenges. There's like points and scoring and it just kind of it helps me get out of the house even when it's quite cold into the garage. And then I do my 25, 30 minutes of star jumps and press ups and whatnot. And if I do that, I know I'll have a better day. I talked briefly about sort of burning out before one of the things that happened then is I realized that I had problems with anxiety for probably my entire adult life and I do exercise as much for the sort of mental well-being benefits as for the physical well-being benefits but what I've actually found with this app in particular is that it actually it gives me incentive to keep going and it's done in a way that's really nice bite-sized the feedback's really good so finding something that works for you in building habits which I know sounds like quite a generic piece of advice I shouldn't be saying is go and use this app and do use it to do exercise because that will work for you but finding something that helps to embed habits is the best thing. The other thing that works really well for me in terms of resisting crisps and going downstairs is I do like a lot of meal prepping on Sunday. So I make a big batch of Mexican bean salad every Sunday Sunday afternoon and that keeps me going for lunch for most of the week. And because it's there, I have to eat it because that'd be wasteful otherwise. Mm -hmm. So again, I kind of appeal to my own desire not to sort of throw stuff in the bin. 
but that's like Sunday afternoon Paul kind of like getting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday Paul in shape when he's probably had a bad morning or one too many meetings and would really quite like to have a bacon sandwich instead, but he can't because there's already a salad made in the fridge. So those would be the things for me. I think from a more philosophical perspective, the thing that's really worked for me with my well-being over the last five years or so is having that broader definition of success. So if you think about success in terms of your relationships, in terms of your physical well-being, your mental well-being, and in terms of your work, then I think you will value your time more and it helps you to create those boundaries. So I'm very good at checking my laptop at the end of the day, not checking what's on my phone because I've kind of reframed success to not just include progression in work, getting work done. Work is still a part of that, but it's not the whole part of that. And that's really helped me to really redefine my own personal approach to well-being. This is where it's a struggle, isn't it? Because you've defined, isn't it, Paul, what it means to you. And I think this is what organisations have got to realise, that what well-being, what success what all of these things are to each individual is different. And I think that's a major, major piece of what organizations can certainly focus on would be a major bit of guidance for me because the key word is balance. I'm not convinced that this thing called work-life balance really exists anymore. I think the word balance is what exists. I had a burnout. I was promoted to a, a global role. I became a father of twins in the space of three months. And the level of change was simply too much. And so you do reevaluate, you know, you do reevaluate what does balance mean? And so certainly for, for me, habit, I agree, you know, trying to build in some of these habits, getting outside and getting that fresh air, doing the walks. And my wife certainly helps me with that kind of discipline, but also working out what works for you, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, if there's a football game on, it works for me to get my laptop out and perhaps do a little bit of work while watching a game, because it may help me from a pressure standpoint tomorrow. So that's balance. That's me finding a solution and finding a balance. I'm sitting there anyway, the game's on in the background, so why not? And I think it's people defining what that balance is. Let people find their individual balance. I think that's what leaders have got to work out. They've got to work out in their teams what works for one does not work for everybody and you can't sheep dip. I think those would be some of my considerations. So that's all for today. It's been fascinating talking to you both and it's clear that this is a discussion we all need to keep having as even pre-pandemic mental health issues have always been a factor in the workplace. And whilst the last year or so has shone a light on how we treat ourselves and each other in the workplace, it's clear that as we move out of lockdowns, workplace culture will always need to adapt and learn in order to protect the well-being of staff and retain its workforce. Huge thanks to both Paul and Michael, and thanks to you at home for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's podcast. So if you'd like to get involved in the discussion or have any questions, you can do that on our blog, where we'll be sharing all of these shows. You can find that at edenhousesolutions.co.uk forward slash blog. And of course, you can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, thank you all and goodbye.